You may remember the story that we did about a year ago about canvassers going door to door and talking to voters for 20 minutes. And in just 20 minutes, the canvassers got some voters to change their minds, to flip positions on big, hot-button issues, gay marriage, abortion, which, of course, is amazing, right? That is not something that seems like it's even possible. There was a study in a well-known peer-reviewed journal, Science Magazine, proving how remarkably effective these people were. They invented a whole new way to sway voter opinion. It seemed like a game-changer, a whole new tool for politics, for liberals or conservatives to use. And then, a month after our radio story, maybe you saw this in the news, there was overwhelming evidence that one of the researchers, a grad student named Michael Lacour, had fabricated all the data. Science Magazine retracted the article. But the team that invented this canvassing technique, they were not the ones that did the research study. That was a separate thing. And they were just as shocked as anybody, maybe more shocked. The week the news broke, one of the canvas organizers, Steve DeLine, told me they'd spend months meticulously going door-to-door and keeping perfect records of everything they were doing for this researcher to find out that LaCour had just made up his part of the data. It's unfathomable to me having, you know, made sure that we were dotting every I and crossing every T uh, and, you know, jumping through every hoop that he asked of us. It's, it's just, uh, uh, just can't really explain it. I'm at a loss. Then in August... Three months after the retraction, four months after our story aired. Hi. Hi. Steve. Dave. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you guys in person. We got a visit at our office from two of the guys who developed this canvassing technique. That guy Steve and his co-worker Dave Fleischer. They happened to be in town from California. And they had news. A brand new study with new researchers was looking into their work. Results were coming in. Here's Dave. We're not anticipating going public with these results until January at the earliest, and maybe not till June. What these researchers really wanted to do was publish the results in Science Magazine, you know, the place that published the original discredited study. In fact, one of the researchers was laying the groundwork for that. So he actually called up Marsha McNutt, who's the editor of Science, and they didn't immediately reject it out of hand. She just said, you know, the bar's going to be very high. Well, no fooling. Well, apparently Science Magazine liked what the new researchers did. This week they published the new study about these canvassers. This one's not fake. We know now, for real, whether those canvassers are in fact convincing anyone of anything when they go door to door. And if anything, what the canvassers are achieving and the way that they're achieving it is even more interesting than the fake study said. From WBEZ Chicago and This American Life, from Ira Glass, today on our program, for your reconsideration, we have this story and two other stories where people go back and revisit evidence from the past. And uh, just to start this off, in case you didn't hear our first story about those canvassers a year ago, here's what they were. If you heard that show, this will just be a quick reminder. Hi, um, we're talking to registered voters in your neighborhood today about their views on abortion. This is one of the canvassers. She's young, with tattoos and a halter top. It's a warm Los Angeles day. And the voter's on the other side of a screen door. She's older, heavy set, wire rim glasses. She's a nurse. And, okay, just to be clear, what you're about to hear is a real canvasser with a real voter. This is not part of the discredited study. This is from a video of one of the regular canvases these guys, Dave and Steve, organized. The canvasser begins by asking this voter what she believes about abortion on a scale from zero to ten. Zero means you think women should have no access to abortion. Ten means women should have full access to abortion. The voter says zero. No access, no abortions for anybody. She's Catholic from Mexico. And they start talking about how hard it can be to discuss abortion, even with family. How did that feel for you to talk to your daughters? It's not easy. It's not easy because in my country, Mm -hmm. they have taboos, a lot of taboos. And my mother is one of the persons never talking about sexual relations or conceptions. Yeah. That's why I try to be very open with my daughters. Notice that this conversation's just begun, and already she's talking about her daughters and her mom. That's no accident. This whole technique is built around having a very personal conversation, a very real conversation about the voters' experiences. To make that happen, this canvasser does something that a lot of the canvassers do. She talks about her own experiences. My mother's from um, the Philippines. Uh-huh. And... Um, my my mother went through the same thing. Like, it's not something that you talk about. No, it's not. 
Oh. And my family is the same. When I got my period, I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, The voter tells her that when she was 11 and got her period, nobody explained what was happening. She thought she was dying. And I believe I, I am dying. <laughs> so, and when she was six, her mom miscarried a baby. But nobody explained what was going on to her. And so she's tried to be different with her daughters and talk to them. That's why she became a nurse, she says, to help women. So these two strangers are swapping stories and really talking from the heart. And 15 minutes into this 22-minute conversation, the canvasser circles back to the subject at hand in a very pointed way. I had an abortion mm-hmm. um, in November this past year. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, it, was, it wasn't the wrong choice for me mm-hmm. um, because that's, that's what felt right for me. But I was alone. Yeah. And it was scary. And it wasn't, it was because I, I don't know how to talk about it with mm-hmm. people. Like my family, my mother loves me. Mm-hmm. And so does my papa and mm-hmm. my sister. Mm-hmm. I know, but it's hard. Everything. And I, you carry it for the rest of your life. It's your decision, yeah. but you carry it for the rest of your life. If you're, one of the things that I struggled with is telling my family mm-hmm. is this idea that my family is going to love me less. No. Would you ever love your daughters less? No. Never. It's a moment that's simultaneously intimate and manipulative and honest all at once. And it works. After this, the canvasser asks the voter again to rate on a scale of 0 to 10 where she stands on access to abortion. Remember, she was a 0 before. We have that same 0 to 10 scale where 0 means no access um, and 10 means full access. A 10? Mm Mm-hmm. She's been standing at the door just 18 minutes. So again, okay, that's real. That is not part of the fraudulent study. The team that invented this technique of going door-to-door, including Dave Fleischer and Steve Deline, the two guys who visited our office at the beginning of this story, they work at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, which is a big multi-million dollar nonprofit, the biggest LGBT organization in the world. They started doing these canvases in 2009. They were hoping to change voters' minds to support gay marriage. This was in the wake of Proposition 8 which rejected gay marriage in California. And they discovered through trial and error that the trick to this whole thing was they don't try to reason with people about rights and equality and big principles like that. Canvas organizer Steve DeLine says, if you're talking at a kind of rational, sort of intellectual level about things, you're going to fail. That's not where people make their decisions about issues like this. People make their decisions about how they're going to vote on this at a gut level and at a visceral level and an emotional level. This is what they learned, to stop telling people things. The most important thing the canvassers should do is listen. I think the big revelation was that our job was actually to go and give them the chance to talk about their own life and realize that, you know, maybe maybe that led them to conclusions that were a little different than they'd thought. So they're doing this, trying their canvases, and it took them less than a year to start to get decent results. Like you heard with that nurse. A small but noticeable number of people at the door told them that their minds had been changed. But of course, the only way to tell for sure if their minds changed and stayed changed was to have outsiders, scientists, do a proper case control study. And that's why the canvassers invited in two political scientists to do the original study that was published in Science Magazine. That grad student from UCLA, Michael LaCour, did the actual research but the study, design, and results were overseen by a big-deal political scientist from Columbia University named Donald Green, who's kind of legendary in that world, for transforming how people do field experiments. And Green says that before they started, he expected the results were going to show... Uh, short-term effects. I thought that those effects would subside in, in a few days' time. He thought that because pretty much that's what always happens. People change their minds, and then the effect wears off. Or, much more common... They don't change their minds at all. There's a hefty body of research documenting something called the backfire effect, which happens with most of us. When we're confronted with evidence disproving something that we personally believe, most of us generally just dig in and we believe it more. This is a phenomenon, by the way, that's familiar to anybody who's ever been to a Thanksgiving dinner during an election year and tried to argue with some favorite uncle's wrong-headed political opinions. Never works, right? Facts mean nothing. And by the way, Uncle Lenny, I am not talking about you. But this is what was so revolutionary about the data that this grad student seemed to be gathering about these canvassers. He said he did online surveys with the voters who got visited by the canvassers, and they showed that their minds changed and stayed changed for six months, nine months, a year. 
after the canvasser knocked at the door. Green told me that he and his colleagues had read through over 900 papers, never seen anything like this result, to change people's opinions, have it last like this. Though interestingly, when LaCour first showed his data to Professor Green, Green thought, this data is so perfect. These results might be real, but okay, best to be sure. And he told LaCour to do the entire study, canvases, surveys, everything, a second time, which LaCour did. Same result. Now, of course, later, Green's suspicions would be confirmed in spades. All that data would be shown to be fraudulent. But here's what LaCour said he found in the original study published in Science. Okay, so what I'm about to say is from the discredited results of a retracted study. The study was about gay marriage. It was about convincing people to support gay marriage. And the study claimed that a year after the canvassers visited voters' homes, the number of voters supporting gay marriage had jumped 15%. 15%. But, and this was key, according to the study, the 15% increase only happened if the canvasser at the door had been gay. It admitted being gay to the voter. People who talked to other canvassers only rose 3%, which is about as much as the nation as a whole changed on the issue of gay marriage that year. It was a similar effect with abortion, according to LaCour. He said the number of people who became pro-choice after the canvas rose 5%. Again, the effect only lasted if the canvasser at the door revealed that she had had an abortion. It was talking to somebody affected by the issue that seemed to be changing people's minds. I actually interviewed uh, Michael LaCour a year ago for the story that I did for our show about all this. I had to say it's strange uh, listening to that interview today, knowing what happened just a few weeks after we talked, that his data would be shown to be fraudulent. Because when I talked to him, he really talked like somebody doing a real study with real surveys. Like, for instance, I asked him how attitudes towards abortion changed over time among the voters that he was studying. Uh, so that's that's still ongoing because I'm... I'm tracking longitudinally these individuals over course. Um, I don't want to give out a hard number, but uh, it's, it stays relatively flat, and I think it it levels off around five percentage points. That's like around uh, 200 days later. He offered conclusions from his data, like this one. So one of the things is people change their – when they had contact with a gay person discussing gay equality, they change their minds not just about the policy issue about same-sex marriage. They also change their minds about gay people, gays and lesbians as a group. Nice if that were true, that there were data supporting it. Or there was this finding, which is so particular and specific that, again, if there is no data supporting this, it's just a very idiosyncratic thing to decide to say is true. Of course, said that he graded each gay canvasser on how stereotypically gay they appeared. And the gay canvassers who are perceived, perceived as straight, had the largest effects. That is, they were able to convince the most voters to support gay marriage. So... This suggests that voters may ordinarily have an unflattering mental image of a stereotypical gay person, um, right? and the discrepancy between the stereotype and the person standing on the doorstep creates a space for attitude change. Right? I see. Um, especially when the canvassers are building empathy through you know, a respectful two-way conversation. This vision of the world is such a hopeful vision of how the world might work. The world LaCour fabricated is one where intolerant people hold inaccurate stereotypes in their heads. And all it takes is an empathetic conversation, one sincere talk, 20 minutes long, with somebody from the stereotype group, and the scales fall from their eyes. They realize they were wrong all along. I like that world. I wish I lived in that world. Maybe we do live in that world for all we know. But if we do, there's no data proving it. He Don Green. Yes. Ira Glass. Ira. Last May, a month after we ran our story about LaCour's study, six months after he published that study in Science Magazine, I called his co-author, Columbia Professor Donald Green. Green had just reconsidered what was going on in the data LaCour had collected, and had asked Science to retract their article, which the magazine did. He seemed, understandably, sobered and sad. It, it was such a waste, uh, not just of of my time, obviously, but of the, the center and the canvasser's time. Yeah. It's just crazy. The way the fraud was discovered was actually a little detective story of its own. A detective story that began kind of exactly the way they tell you in school that the scientific method is supposed to work. 
two young researchers, David Brockman and Joshua Kalla, both in their 20s, tried to replicate what LaCour did. The team from the Los Angeles LGBT Center and a Miami LGBT group was organizing a new canvas operation in Miami. Brockman and Kalla would study that. Brockman was already suspicious of LaCour's data. It seemed too perfect. Then they started the research, and they noticed something funny. The way this experiment works, like I said, the researchers do online surveys of the voters' opinions before and after the canvassers come to their doors and talk to them. And the researchers pay the voters to fill out those online surveys to motivate them to do the surveys. And tons of voters filled out LaCour's surveys, but not Brockman and Calla's. This made no sense at all. And they didn't know what to do. People didn't fill out their surveys. They'd have no study. They started to panic. So they reached out to the survey company that LaCour said he used to find out exactly how LaCour got so many people to fill in their surveys. The company informed them that LaCour was not one of their clients, that the employee LaCour said he worked with did not exist. And in fact, this company did not have the capability to do the things LaCour said they did for him. The hundreds of thousands of dollars that were supposedly paid out to survey responders, which LaCour said came from funders like the Ford Foundation, who LaCour thanked in his study, never was actually granted to LaCour. Given all that, it was hard to see how any of the data could be real. But LaCour held firm, said the data was real. He even wrote a paper defending it. But he said that he could not show the data to anybody because he had destroyed all the original surveys to protect the privacy of the respondents. I'm not sure anybody believed him. He'd been headed for a prestigious job at Princeton University after finishing his doctoral thesis. Now that job evaporated. His collaborator Don Green says the odd thing was that the fakery went way beyond what seemed to be necessary. And this is, I think, the, the thing that I just want to convey somehow, is that you know there was a, a, an incredible mountain of, um, of fabrications you know, with the most baroque and ornate ornamentation, you know, um, there were stories, there were anecdotes, there were, you know, my, my Dropbox is filled with graphs and charts. What do you mean there's stories and anecdotes? I thought the only thing that was fabricated was the, was the sur- online surveys. Right, but there would be stories out of the out of the survey. So, you know, he would say things like, well, did you know that um, some of the people in the survey came out? As if, in later surveys, their attitudes about homosexuality had changed enough that they were comfortable finally admitting to the surveyors that they were gay. Except, of course, the surveys didn't seem to exist. It's layer after layer of embellishment that the sheer magnitude of it makes it very hard to sort of entertain the the possibility that it's all made up. The day after the truth came to light, one of the guys who created the canvases, Dave Fleischer, told me that that's what he found himself trying to get his head around, the layers of embellishment. He told me this story about working with Michael LaCour. At our very first canvas where Mike was measuring us, uh, right, we we're running the canvas training, we're sending people out canvassing, we're going out canvassing, and Mike has a, has a laptop set up. And as voters that we've talked to then fill out their first post-canvassing survey. In other words, after real-life canvassers came to their doors, Michael LaCour is supposedly having these voters fill out online surveys. And he's telling the canvassers, those surveys... Some of them are starting to trickle in. And Mike's got his laptop set up with him gazing intently at it and his group of about a half dozen research assistants clustered around him, gazing at it raptly the way you would at election results on a presidential election night. And after we finish the canvas debrief and the volunteers leave, Mike invites us the team of staff organizers to come over and also glimpse the findings that are starting to emerge. And I really have thought back on this moment, uh, obviously in the last 24 hours, because it really looked like, oh my God, the results are coming in. Wait, wait, wait. And so what was on his screen? Did did you see his screen? Oh, yeah. It, uh, it was like a... Um, Heck, uh, it's like data points coming in, and he would go back and forth between these two. Uh, I, this is probably an old-fashioned term from when I studied sociology, but scattergrams. These are like charts. Yes, it was a graphic depiction. And so he's coming back and forth, and are those charts changing over the course of the time you look at them? Oh, yeah. It's so elaborate. 
Well, yes, it would have been a whole lot easier just to have measured our work. <laughs> <laughs> How do you explain this? Like, like you, you, you worked with him for many, many hours. How, how, how are you putting this together in your head? Two years, Ira. And yeah, it is uh, not really understandable to to me because um, you you spoke, I believe, with Mike on the phone. Yeah, and uh, he's a smart guy. He, uh, I think, is genuinely a caring guy. He genuinely loves statistics. But there is a piece of this that is incomprehensible when somebody who has so much uh, makes such a grievous choice. Canvas organizers say... Staff and 73 volunteers worked for more than 3,600 hours, including knocking on doors and talking to over 400 voters for the fake study. Since all this went down last year, Michael, of course, still has not admitted to fabricating data in public or in private with the colleagues of his that I've spoken to. He declined my invitation to come on the radio this week and talk about this. He declined to say whether the data was real or fake. The one chink in this position came last month. When out of the blue, he texted Dave Fleischer, Hi, Dave. If you're willing, I'd like to meet with you face-to-face to apologize. Dave told me he hasn't been able to bring himself to respond just yet. He's not ready. Yeah, so um, what we've done so far is the Miami work. And I think that's um, what we're sort of ready to show you some of the early sneak peek into. I think you're the first... Of a That's David Brockman, one of the guys who discovered the fraud in the original study, and the co-author of the new study, with real surveys and real data, that was published this week in Science Magazine. This recording is him talking to me last August, three months after Science retracted the original study. It was Brockman and his research partner, remember, who discovered LaCour's fraud when they tried to replicate his methods in Miami. Now the Miami data was in, the first part of it anyway. Canvases in Miami went door-to-door trying to change voters' attitudes about transgendered people. Miami-Dade County passed an ordinance in 2014 banning discrimination against transgender people. And these canvassers were trying to convince voters that that was a good idea and to support it if a ballot measure someday tried to strike it down. And they succeeded. Um, and you see just a huge um, uh, increase in acceptance towards um, transgender people. Uh, and uh, overall, what you see is, is it's... Um, Basically, the largest effect um, I've ever seen for, for any political tactic, so much more than you know, phone calls or mail uh, or other forms of canvassing that I've seen. Um, the effect is just huge. In other words, the thing that was so exciting about the discredited study turned out to be true. These canvases can change people's minds, for real. Roughly one out of ten voters change their attitudes about transgender people. As the study notes, it took from 1998 to 2012, 14 years, for the country as a whole to have a comparable change in its attitudes towards gay people. It only took the canvassers 20 minutes or less to do this for trans people. Brockman said the only political tactic that has ever been shown to be more effective than this in affecting attitudes is personally meeting somebody who's running for office, which, of course, is a very different kind of thing. More impressive is that the effect... Um, appears to last. You basically see the exact same pattern of results six weeks later. Um, we're going to start measuring again um, uh, at, uh, I think we decided, three months and six months. So who knows if these will continue to last into the future. They did. Three months later, attitudes stayed changed. Again, same as the discredited study. But where it gets really interesting is the stuff that the new guys found that is different from the original study. First difference, remember how the original study said that only a gay canvasser could convince a voter to support gay marriage, and only a woman who talked about her own abortion could convince a voter to become pro-choice? David Brockman says, on these trans issues, That's not what we're finding at all. Uh, we see that both transgender and non-transgender canvassers are effective, and they're similarly effective. Which is a profoundly different finding from the original discredited study. The original study seemed to say that it was meeting somebody, relating to a gay person or a trans person or whoever, 
that changed people's attitudes. It was empathy that did the trick. But this new study says it's something else entirely. Really what's happening here is it's listening and asking questions to voters to get them to say the words and to get them to do the mental work to think through how the experiences they've had are relevant to this issue. Like, like in other words, there's this idea of like, well, if you just met a gay person, then that's you right. have this feeling. You're saying like, nah, that's not it. The idea is that um, if the words come out of your own mouth, uh, it's much more meaningful to you than if they come out of somebody else's mouth. That's so, so funny because like, who do you believe? Oh, I believe myself. Exactly. So it's not that this isn't common sense, uh, but it's also not what any campaigns do. Brockman and his co-author also have been working on a study of the abortion canvases organized by the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And here's another difference from the original discredited research done by Michael LaCour. Brockman has found the abortion canvases failed. They didn't actually convince people. Zero. No effect. No effect for anybody. No effect for anyone. Right. How do you explain that this worked with the trans issue, but it didn't work with the abortion issue? Well, I think there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, One possibility is that uh, trans issues are so new uh, whereas abortion is so ingrained that um, it was just easier. Like, In other words, people haven't really formed very firm opinions about trans issues, exactly. whereas everybody knows where they stand. Every adult knows whether they're for or against abortion rights. Right. So I think that's possible. The other possibility, of course, is that Canvas organizers just haven't figured out yet how to talk about abortion at the doorstep in a way that lastingly convinces anyone. We tried very hard, by the way. Somebody actually flew to Los Angeles to locate that nurse that you heard at the beginning of the program to find out if she went back to her old pro-life beliefs after the canvasser walked away from the door. But we couldn't find her. I will say, in videos of the Miami campus, one thing that's really striking is how malleable people do seem to be on the transgender issues in this way that's very hard to imagine on abortion rights. Sometimes the canvasser has to explain to the voters exactly what transgender means. They have to show videos to be sure that it's understood what it is they're even talking about. Or take this man, an older voter with a kind face, who stands at his doorstep in a sleeveless undershirt, telling that same canvasser that you heard at the beginning of the program. There is one thing that disturbed me. Uh, I don't know if, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a man that is a, a fan, using a man's clothes going into a lady's bathroom. That I would not like. Mm-hmm. Did you say a, a man who, who is a... They talk for a while. He's from Ecuador, doesn't get out much because he's at home caring for his wife, who has dementia, doesn't have many friends, and seems genuinely confused about the difference between trans and gay. The canvasser explains what is what about that to him. She even helpfully informs him... So we don't usually use the word fag, so... <laughs> he apologizes, says that spending all of his time with his wife, maybe he's getting demented too, forgetting how to talk to people. And by the end, it is just like the researcher Brockman said, the voter is the one reflecting on his experience, drawing new conclusions. I'm so glad I'm talking to a really intelligent person that made me... It's kind of hard to hear. He's saying, I'm glad to be talking to an intelligent person that made me think about my own background and that it was very old. Listen, probably I was mistaken. Listen, probably I was mistaken. Okay, one last thing. I guess this is the most obvious question probably that I could ask in this story. And I just want you to know I did ask it. Here's the recording. Okay, so there's one study published in Science Magazine like a year ago. It says that this works. It was proven to be a fraud. Now you guys are coming out with a study in Science Magazine saying that this works. Why should we believe you? (laughs) We've thought about this. Um, As silly as it was, we did uh, have... One of our old graduate advisors, uh, Gabriel Lenz at Berkeley, independently verify and go through that the original raw data collected in the survey platform matched all the stages of the data that we collected, data from the study that we'll then post publicly. He's saying that unlike Michael LaCour, they gave their actual raw information of what all the survey respondents said to somebody else to look at, who also made sure that the numbers in their charts and graphs and analysis match what the actual surveys say. They're posting the original survey data without people's names or identifying information, online for anybody to inspect. Science marches on. 
with coming up. A stranger tries to make somebody rethink everything in his life over the phone in one hour in one conversation. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life, from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, for your reconsideration. We have stories today of people going back and rethinking evidence, reconsidering where they've been and what has come before. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Hotline Bleak. So here's an example of a guy reconsidering his life in real time, on the phone, with a complete stranger. The recording comes from Chris Gethert, who's a comedian, he also does a cable TV show. He's been on our program now and then. And the recording that I want to play you comes from this new podcast that Chris is doing called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Our editor, Joel Lovell, is the one who heard it and loved it. So the idea for the podcast is pretty simple. Chris is in a studio in New York, and he opens the phone line to one caller, an anonymous person calling in from anywhere for any reason at all. The only rules guiding the conversation are it's 60 minutes long, and Chris can't hang up. If the caller decides to get off the line before the hour is up, if they get annoyed or mad or tired of Chris, that's totally fine. But Chris, he's in it for the duration. In this call you're about to hear, you can feel him at the beginning getting his bearings. So it's a little meandering, and then something changes. Hey, this is Gethard. How are you? Hey, what's up? Eh, not much. Just a second. I'm in a weird hallway right now. Am I echoey? Oh, no, I think you're pretty good. Awesome. So what are we talking about? I don't know. I'm at work. I just took about a 30-minute break in my car. I walked back in, and then, yeah, I just, uh, it, nobody's here. So you're just doing do whatever you want. customer service for, like, accounts payable. How is that? How do you like that? Oh, it's the worst, Chris. Yeah, it sounds like it. I didn't want to be judgmental, but it sounds awful. You're hiding in your car. Yeah. I've been, it's been a year I've been doing this. I just, I feel like I've kind of wasted the last year. I feel like I spend a lot of time not doing things. What are the Hmm. things you're not doing? I don't go to that, take those improv classes. Uh huh. Go hang out. But even when I say what are the things, you don't quite. Yeah. I, you don't really even know what the things are. I feel I'm generally uncertain about everything. You kind of have a dream to have some dreams. Mm hmm. Man, that's a. Uh, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. I say this with love. That's a grim, no, that's a grim, I know. That's a grim place to be. This kind of conversation with a sad person who has a vague wish to join an improv class, or maybe go to an open mic night, but probably won't, this is really familiar terrain for Chris. He hosts a show on cable, and he often talks about his own mental health struggles. And he and his staff, they're always concocting ingenious ways to motivate and cheer up depressed people, specifically their own depressed fans. There's this one episode where Chris says, "Okay, we're going to generate some footage here for people to revisit if they ever need to feel better. And then Ellie Kemper, that really sunny actress from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, comes on. And they just keep bringing out impossibly cute things. There's a basket of bunnies. Oh, look at these little baby bunnies! And then a kitten. And then a baby dressed in a tuxedo. And she keeps having these huge spasms of joy. All of which is to say, this guy on the line saying he's not even sure what his dreams are. For Chris, that's like someone calling Susie Orman to talk about their FICO score. So how do we work on this? I don't know, Chris. I think I've probably been drinking too much, smoking too much weed. I need to be exercising. I should be meditating. I should be going to therapy. Feels like this phone call. Becoming therapy. Well, it feels like this phone call is you taking one of the actions you say you don't usually take. Mm Mm-hmm. So I feel some responsibility to affect permanent change via this phone call yeah that'd be nice i don't want to put that pressure on you no i'll, I'll step up i'll do my best yeah. what do i got to do All on right. this phone call what do i got to do in the next 49 minutes and 28 seconds what do i got to do to get you to never walk back into that office again 
What do I got to do okay. to get you to get back in your car on this phone call and drive away from that office you hate while on this phone call? For the next 10 minutes or so, they talk exit strategies like, okay, let's start blue sky in here. Do you have enough saved up to get out right now and buy yourself a little time to look for something better? He's got 300 bucks in the bank, so no, not even close. All right, well, what else do you want to do? No clear idea. His current plan is to get free by just being terrible at his job. There's a point, and it's still kind of ongoing since the summer, of trying to get fired. Okay, so and actively it trying to get fired. doesn't happen. Okay, so then... Yeah, of actively shirking responsibilities. You found out that and you... And then that makes it... That feels worse. <laughs> it does. It feels worse. You don't feel like you're getting away with it's something. Like, oh, you don't feel like you're sticking it to the nothing, bed. You just... You're not holding me to a very high standard. <laughs> Can I ask how you got here? How? Do, where does it start? Not even thinking about the job. Where does it start? Where do you come from? How do you grow up? And this is what you're That's telling a, where me. Where do you want me to start? The beginning. We got we got 40 minutes. Be- we got 39 minutes. The beginning of my life? Yes. I want to hear about the beginning yeah. of your life. I was born in like Jackson, Texas. I believe the doctor that delivered me, I believe, was Ron Paul. What? Right, Ron Paul, the, the libertarian? Yeah, Ron Paul's father, the... Yeah, he was the OBGYN and uh, and the congressman in the district I'm from. I asked you at the beginning of your life, and the answer is that you were delivered into the world by rabble-rousing outsider politician Ron Paul. It, I'll just add this to that day. Uh, when I was born, my mom had been in prison, and they let her out of prison to have me. Wow. Can I ask what your mom was no, in prison I'm, for? Uh, mostly uh, drugs and the types of things you do to get drugs. Yeah. I was raised by my grandparents. Now, I didn't know who my dad was until I was 14. 14, okay. There was kind of a different guy I thought was my dad, some balding, redheaded redneck. But... My dad was the guy my mom was married to before that. Uh Uh-huh. They got married in high school in Montana, moved down to Texas, got divorced, then hooked up 10 years later at the fair. At the fair? Yeah, at the fair. And then that's where I came from. I was a carnival baby. Hold on. You got to give me permission to laugh at the phrase carnival, baby. Because this oh, is yeah, very personal. Thank you so much. This is a personal story and there's a lot of grim details to it. But you can't use the phrase, yeah. I was a carnival, baby, and not expect me to laugh a little bit. Yeah, no. Now, when uh, you say they hooked up at the fair, do you mean they saw each other at the fair, remembered their old flame, went back to one of the, one or the other's house and had a night of lovemaking to remember the old times? Or... Are you saying ran into each other at the fair and then behind the Gravitron you get conceived? I, I think it's more the latter. Because I don't want to be crass. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but you're telling yeah. me well, I, your perception is you were like conceived behind a corn dog stand. Yeah, I, I imagined in the bathroom, but I don't know. Man, you have had to think hard about the circumstances we, of your conception more than almost anybody I've ever met. Yeah. I should say here that we tracked the caller down and talked to some of his relatives. And everything he says in this conversation, being delivered by Ron Paul, his mom being in prison, his having been conceived at the fair, it's all true. So Chris says, what's next? They're at 33 minutes and the clock's ticking and you can start to hear a little urgency in his voice. And the guy walks him through high school and college and then after college he moves into a trailer park and a neighbor there tells him about a job opening at the place where he's calling from now a company with the almost diabolically generic name Bank Tech, where he spends big swaths of his time hiding out in the hallway or eating yogurt out in his car. So there's that, I guess, the private yogurt time. But otherwise, it's soul death. Just slow, low-wattage depression. There's about 10 minutes of that. And then Chris starts to press him. He actually really tries to change the guy's life in the brief time they have left. What makes you happy on a daily basis? What are the moments that wake you up? 
don't know if I can confidently give you an answer on that. I don't know. I feel like lately it's been go to work, go home, internet, drink, smoke, sleep, repeat. So we can call. We can call this one. Honestly, you're giving up a little bit, huh? That's that's accurate, I think. Right? Yeah. What do I got to do here? What do I got to do? You tell me what I got to do because I want to help and we got 13 minutes left. And then the phone gets uh, hung up and I might never speak to you again in our whole lives. And this one is I'm yeah. going to think about forever. Do you have a pep talk? How do I start fighting? I feel like this whole phone call has been the goddamn pep talk. Yeah. That's, I don't know if you can do more. But I want to so bad. You should be going to see a band or a comedy show every night. You should be staying out late and talking to people every night because it sounds like you have a job yeah. where you could show up and literally go to sleep and no one would care. Yeah. It sounds no like if you got, or it wouldn't matter. It sounds like if you got four hours of sleep every night because you were out experiencing art and hanging out with people and doing crazy things and just living, you could come into bank tech, say hello, lay down under your desk, wake up eight hours later and do it all again and there would be no consequences. Yeah. Go out every night. I haven't been... I haven't been living. You gotta live. I've been... I feel like I get off work and I'm like, oh, I eight hours of sleep. What is tonight? Tonight's yeah. Monday? I'm just gonna ask. Yeah. I don't know. My heart is bleeding a little bit. What city are you in? I live in Denton. I work in Dallas. You're in Denton? Denton has a huge music scene. Denton's like an art hub of Texas. You're in the middle of it all. Go. You go see the Marked Men. You go see the Mind Spiders. Even I know the bands that are in Denton, and I live in New York. You go. You live in Denton. It's full of college people who are beautiful and young and making mistakes. You got to just go. There's stuff everywhere. There's no excuses there. I'm going to wonder forever if you did it. I should have. I'm going to wonder forever if you did it. We got seven minutes, and I'm not convinced. Oh, I don't know. I'm not convinced either. No, that's so like, not I've, the answer I've I've seen, I wanted. I wanted you to say, I've no, this is a permanent change. I've in seen this. enough of my patterns. You'll know. Oh, God. I'll go, I'll go do it, and you'll know. How will I know? Are you inside that? Are you still in that weird hallway? No, I'm outside by a tree that I'm taking around. You're by a tree. I need you just start screaming. I need you to scream as loud as you can. Break the pattern. Do a thing. That's the first Ah! thing. More. Ah! (laughs) More. Ah! That's the first step. That's what I got. That's the first step. You just started screaming in the middle of the day. That's the first step. I think so, man. Did it feel good to scream or just weird? Yeah, no, it felt good. I'm a, I'm a very loud person. That's good. Great. Those birds? Do I have birds Is back that there? Good? Yeah, there are birds around here. Someone pulled up right next to me or I'd scream. Should I scream anyways? You tell me if it would feel good, if it would feel good to... Ah! Yeah. I'm 10 minutes away from Dallas Comedy House. You're killing me. Do they have open mics there? Yeah, open mics. I've known for months open mics Tuesday. I've got something ready. You've got an act. You've got an act you want to try. Yeah. You're doing it tomorrow. Yeah. You're doing it tomorrow. What time is the open mic? I think it's at seven or eight. You're doing it tomorrow. Yeah. You're going to do it. And here's what's going to happen is you're going to go and it's going to go terrible. It's your first open mic. It's going to go awful. It's mm-hmm. not going to be fun. You're not going to be funny and it's going to feel really uncomfortable. But you're going to feel f- yeah. alive, man. You're going to feel alive. You promise me you do okay. that open mic tomorrow. You promise uh, me. Yeah. Okay, let's seal I'll the get promise. It done. Do you know how we have to seal the promise? How do we feel it? Both at the same time. Ready? One, two, three. Two. Ah! 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 That was it. He and Chris never talked again. 
So I asked the guy, did he go to that open mic the next night? Nah, he didn't make it. Right after talking to Chris, though, he set a date, March 21st. That's when he'd quit his job and start living. But then as the date got close, he told me, he tried to do everything he could to undermine his own plan. He wasn't sure why, he just felt like he couldn't go through with it. And then, that same week, this conversation went out on Chris's podcast. He had no idea they were going to run it. But he listened to it, and he heard himself talk for an hour about all these things he wants to do but never does. And then he did it. He went into bank tech and quit. Joe Lovell is the editor of our program. The podcast, again, is called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Three, kids look back. So today we're hearing uh, stories about people reconsidering and reexamining what happened to them in the past. And now with an entire book, I understand, of children doing this. Is that right, Brian? Yeah. I welcome into our studio our senior producer, Brian Reed. Hi. 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 Uh, um, so I have this book here I'd like to share with you. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's called Now I Know Better. Uh, kids Tell Kids About Safety. Oh, wait a second. You have it right there. You're yeah, handing you me. Oh, this you is like kind of a beat up. Oh, it's old school. Yeah, I had to find it used on Amazon. Not in circulation anymore. This is a rare copy. Okay. So um, the premise of this is that it's kids telling other kids about safety by telling, like, war stories that they've been through, essentially. So is every story in this book a kid being like, oh, I did this dumbass thing. Now I know better. Don't do what I did? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's it. And how do you know about this? Um, So my best friend, uh, Christopher Alesovich, um, is a contributor, actually. Uh, he was 10 years old, I think, when he wrote this, about an experience he had when he was five. And so he, he did some dumbass thing. Basically, he was, um, <laughs> I guess he was like playing in his yard on his swing set. And I remember the swing set. It was there when we were growing up. It's got a fort part to it. Mm-hmm. This was like slightly before I met him, I mm-hmm. believe. And, uh, and he and his friend Michelle, for some reason, they got it in their mind that it would be cool to like make some kind of wall around this fort by wrapping string all the way around the fort many, many times. And at some point, they decided, okay, it's time to cut the string off. So Michelle asked him to get some scissors. Christopher knew where the scissors were. They were in the drawer in the kitchen somewhere. So he ran inside. He got the scissors. He brought them out. Oh, no. I feel now that scissors have entered the scene, <laughs> I feel worried. Yes. And you should. Um, so then Michelle began cutting some of the string. And Christopher, to hear him tell it, uh, basically wanted to get a closer look Mm -hmm. and uh she cut towards his eye and the scissors went into his left eye oh my god just right in there poor kid he says he actually didn't really feel pain um amazingly but he did know something was wrong there was like fluid coming down out of his eye anyway uh he needed very serious eye surgery he was in the hospital for days so the thing like the thing about his story and about so many of these stories that I really love um, is one, like the tone of them. (laughs) They're written, (laughs) just imagine like a five-year-old or an eight-year-old writing a war story, (laughs) kind of like telling it, like imagine them sitting at a bar, like sidled up with like whiskey and they're like a 10-year-old talking about the time they had scissors shoved into their eye. So it's not just kids looking back, it's kids looking back with an unnatural seriousness that's being pressed on them by the adults who are writing the book. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's what's happening. Let's hear what it sounds like. You read what your friend writes. And, 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 and read it kind of like a grizzled war vet. <clears throat> okay. The scissors jerked back and poked me right in the eye. I don't remember much of what followed, except that my mom and dad took me to St. Vincent Hospital, where Dr. Mark Steckel did surgery on my eye. I learned not to put my eyes near any sharp objects, and I would advise you to do the same. <laughs> Christopher Lesevich, age 10. Um, so the other thing to just that I want to share with you that I find entertaining about these is uh, the advice and the lesson of so many of these is so specific. 
that I find it incredibly, incredibly humorous. Okay. <laughs> so like, and even like when I remember talking to Chris about it, like, like the, like the lesson of his story was like, don't lean into scissors that are cutting like a, a particularly taut piece of string because you might get <laughs> poked in the eye. Like that's what he took away from the story. And so, and so they're all like that. A lot of them are like, can I read you this one? Sure. So this one is in the chapter called chapter on bicycles. The chapters are amazing, by the way. There's many, many chapters. Amazing like what? Like what are the different chapters? There's just such a variety. It makes you realize how dangerous of a place the world is. You've got axes, bees, bicycles, burns, camping, cars, cuts, dogs, doors, drinking, electricity, escalator. That is a lot of dangerous things. Yeah. Now, before you read this one, I just want to know, now, do you want dramatic music like this? Or very dramatic music? Like this. Which one do you want? Um, let's go a little more subdued, a little more understated. All right, here we go. How about this? Thank you. Last year, I had a little accident. I was riding home on my bike in Rocky Neck State Park after going swimming with my sister. I had a bag with my towel in it hanging on my handlebars, swinging near my front wheel. All of a sudden, I hit a bump and the bag swung right into the wheel. The bag got stuck, and the wheel couldn't turn. My bike stopped moving, and I flipped over and landed hard on the ground. The bike landed on top of me. My sister helped me get up while I was crying like crazy. My sister then told me to open my mouth. I did, and she told me part of my tooth was missing. I learned a very important lesson. If you are riding a bike and need to put some clothes in a bag, put them in a knapsack on your back so they won't go into your wheel. It's just like you know, see what very, I'm saying. It's very specific. <laughs> it's just but, like, but let me just ask you a question. Yeah. Now, does it have anything on there? If you're coming home from the store with some candy in a bag, is there anything about that? What do you do with no, that? No, I mean that's totally fine. You put it over the handlebars, and I mean, like, <laughs> and what if what if I have like some comic books that I picked up and they're in a bag? Handlebars, handlebars. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this one's my favorite. Um, you want to guess what uh, chapter? What the name of this chapter is? Poison. No. Um, wait, hold on. Um, not staying far enough from the edge of a cliff? <laughs> is that a chapter? <laughs> no, sadly. The, this chapter, uh, this chapter is called Nose, simply. <laughs> <laughs> Just straight up Nose. nose. <laughs> As in N-O-S-E. <laughs> I got it. Um, all right. The title of this one is No One Is Laughing. <laughs> Dude. <sighs> um, so this one's written by a 12-year-old named Dan Strang. It's actually written in the third person, which is interesting. It's an interesting take about another child. When Karen was three, she was just trying to show off for two other cousins when they were watching TV. She took the leftover kernels from the bottom of the bowl of popcorn and stuck two kernels up her small nostrils. She kept them up there for about a minute and got a couple laughs. Then she tried to take them out. She tried so hard her nostrils were as red as blood. In the emergency room, they had no idea how she got them in there. The doctors decided to stick the tweezers up her nose while she was pushing with her index fingers from the top to bottom. Finally, the kernels popped out. I dearly suggest that you never stick popcorn kernels up your nose to be funny, because it's a serious <laughs> accident. <laughs> so what do you like about that one so much? Again, I just love I love the specificity of it. Like, if I were to go through that or witness it as an adult, if I were to try and tell someone to watch out, I'd been there. Like, you don't want to go through what I went through. I might say, like, don't stick foreign objects up your nose of right. any kind. Yeah. Um, but the lesson that this 12-year-old draws is uh, don't stick popcorn kernels up your nose to be funny. <laughs> okay, so kids do not generalize. That is what I've learned from this so far. Yeah, apparently not. And actually, I talked to my friend Christopher uh, about what happened to him, and we were reading through the book together, and his mom actually happened to be there, too, because she was visiting him. Um, and she was a first-grade teacher for many, many years oh. uh, before she retired, and she totally confirmed this. She was like, yeah, it's something I dealt with day in, day out. And actually, they told me uh, a story that I did not know in all the years I've known him uh, that illustrates this perfectly. There is apparently a sequel to oh. the earlier scissors story. Brian asked his mother 
I'd like to interject that he's learned not to put his eyes near sharp things, but he never learned not to put his fingers near sharp things. So I guess two years after he got hospitalized for scissors, he was at school. Uh, school. It was a school day was ending. He was waiting for the bus with kids in his class. And somehow, like, he and this girl were playing, and there was a pair of scissors around. Um, he was very, like insistent that they were they were um safety scissors like the kind of like plasticky rounded edge ones or whatever Mm -hmm. sure um and somehow they were playing with these and like the question of like are these dangerous or not kind of came up i looked at the special scissors and they were very dull they had rounded um tips and so they were not sharp as where my previous um lesson was that sharp scissors are dangerous and so therefore not sharp scissors are not dangerous how old were you? So I w- this was second grade. I must have been. You were probably seven, but yeah. you're a January birthday. So, so yeah. not only was I so sure that scissors that didn't look sharp were not dangerous, but then I had to prove to another person my knowledge of this matter and to you know show off that, hey, you're wrong. These scissors are not dangerous. It's amazing that like the lesson, the very serious lesson you'd been taught, like by being hospitalized, you know, a couple of years earlier, the lesson <laughs> you'd been taught to specifically watch yourself around scissors was the thing that inspired you to be like extra braggadocious and like careless around scissors. Yes. Yes. So what I did, I stuck out my, my hand and my finger and I was like, here, cut. It's not going to (laughs) cut. God. Lo and behold, it cut my finger. I was like, Oh, Oh crap. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess like his parents had to get called by the principal he couldn't go home on the bus because he was bleeding quite profusely like again his parents had to be told like christopher has had an incident with scissors he was fine um but you know so what was the lesson of that of that accident so the lesson of that accident is that all scissors are sharp regardless of whether they look sharp or not (laughs) and and actually i did internalize that lesson and i'd like to point out there has not been a third scissors incident (laughs) And a good 25 years have gone by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lesson learned there. Brian Reed, thank you very much. Of course, anytime. Always a fine report. Brian Reed is the senior producer of our program. Someday when our dream world finds us And these hard times are gone We'll laugh and count our blessings In a mansion all our own If we both pull together Tomorrow sure to come and Someday we'll look back and say it was fun. Our program was produced by Stephanie Fu, Zoe Chase, John Cole, Neil Drumming, Khan Joffrey Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Robin Semi, and Augusta Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Brian Reed, our editors, Joel Lovell, Julie Snyder's editorial consultant. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Production help from Ira Smith. Special thanks today to Shane Fletcher. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, summer is coming up, and he is so excited for the tilt-a-whirl and fried dough and the flying swings. I was a carnival baby. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Someday we'll look back and say was fun. At Lagunitas.com. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, summer is coming up and he is so excited for the tilt-a-whirl and fried dough and the flying swings. I was a carnival baby. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Someday we'll look back and say it was fun.